Last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Okay, let's talk about the dismemberment. The elephant in the room. He sawed across the thigh bones and the arm bones. Instead of cutting around the joints as you would if you were going to cut up a chicken to cook it, or if you have turkey for Thanksgiving and you and you carve that turkey, you, you always go around the joints. It was just, it was unplanned. That's what we think the evidence will show you. It was unplanned. It was spur of the moment. And again, he ran. And he was arrested again, shoplifting a chicken salad sandwich with $400 in his pocket. What he wanted to do was kill himself rather than be arrested. He had decided that he was going to kill himself. And he had talked to Debbie about it. He even had a plot to, to kill himself in Douglas's driveway. So he was put in jail. He called his lawyers late that evening. He put in the Orleans Parish Prison, a place that's worse than the L.A. County Jail. We believe the evidence will show it wasn't a confession at all. It was Bob trying to play them. Well, you asked me I what you. I thought you wanted to hear. I think what you wanted to hear is what did you do with Kathy? Right. And I think you want me to go through details of, of, of Susan. I do. Okay, so now if I tell you those things, I'm pleading guilty. I'm going to be going back to Los Angeles, to California, and doing my time. There is no evidence. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's after lunch on the final day of opening statements, and Dick DeGaron has handed the reins to his co-counsel, David Chesnoff. The Nevada attorney wears a cornflower blue tie and rimless glasses. He punctuates his speech with hand motions, the point of a pen, the sweep of a palm, and the thumb-forward fist of a politician. I haven't had a chance to speak to you at all. May it please the court, Your Honor. Colleagues, all of you, most importantly, Mr. Durst, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my name is David Chesnoff. I've been a lawyer for 40 years. Married to my wife, Diana, who's present. Our wedding anniversary, 35 years, is in five days. She cares for a small ranch that we have. We have horses, birds, lots of trees, thanks to her. We have eight dogs, mostly rescues. I also have a 28-year-old son, Max, who lives in the valley. He works on the administrative side of a recovery facility. Chesnoff's folksy introduction seems tailor-made for the Los Angeles jury, particularly his mention of his rescue dogs and his son who works at an addiction treatment facility. 
It's an unassuming snapshot of a man who has spent much of his career in Las Vegas representing celebrity clients such as David Copperfield, Britney Spears, and Paris Hilton. In interviews, Chesnoff isn't shy about his flashy lifestyle. He is reportedly an avid poker player who frequents the high-limit lounge of the Aria Casino and is extremely well-traveled, having accompanied his brother, the late journalist Richard Chesnoff, on many international expeditions. But today, there's little trace of Chesnoff the high roller. He presents with humble showmanship as he considers the duty of the court. You and I share a huge responsibility because we have Mr. Durst's life in our hands. Even after 40 years of practice, you get nervous before you stand up. You get butterflies, perspiring a little bit, I'm sure. But my nerves always settle down when I remember that we have the greatest vehicle for justice in the world. The United States has the greatest vehicle for justice in the world. That's the jury, who are sworn to uphold the U.S. Constitution, probably the most sacred document in the history of the free world, without question the greatest document for freedom. Chesnoff's preamble gives deference to the jury, but it also ruminates on American exceptionalism in a way that isn't typical of West Coast attorneys. During the voir dire, both the prosecution and the defense spent a good deal of time trying to groom the minds of the potential jurors by offering them tools for how to interpret evidence. Chesnoff's meditation on the constitutional role of jurors appears to be a continuation of the defense team's efforts to inculcate in the panel members that, by dispassionately separating information about Robert Durst's character from any evidence of his guilt, they are performing a patriotic act. Chesnoff then segues into the specific elements of the defense team's version of this story. It's important to remember that Bob is only charged with Susan Berman's murder. That's what you folks are deciding. You're not deciding whether or killed Morris Black. You're not deciding whether or not there's enough evidence to establish what Mr. Lewin said, which is that she was killed in the house that night. And we're going to address that because that's what he said. Your job is to determine, true to that Constitution, that there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt from real evidence that Bob is responsible for Susan's death. We will believe the evidence will show that Morris Black was killed in self-defense, and that is not evidence in connection with Susan Berman's death. It's no evidence. I'm going to repeat this a lot. No evidence is evidence. If it's not there, you can consider it. No evidence is evidence. It's a simple phrase, but it seems intended to fit into a phenomenon that has come to be known as the CSI effect. The journalist and blogger Michael Roberts has defined this as a, quote, belief that forensic science television dramas influence American jurors to want more forensic evidence to convict defendants of crimes, end quote. Amazingly, the first print reference to this so-called CSI effect seems to have been in a 2004 USA Today article that began by citing Robert Hirshhorn, a jury consultant who had been hired by Dick DeGuerin's team to help pick the jurors for the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of Morris Black. As you will recall, investigators never found Black's head, 
and DeGuerin and his team claimed that wounds to the head might have supported Durst's story that he had killed Black in self-defense. According to the USA Today article, quote, Hirshhorn wanted jurors who were familiar with shows such as CSI Crime Scene Investigation to spot the importance of such a gap in the evidence, end quote. Hirshhorn was quoted in the article as saying, quote, there's this almost obsession with the shows. You can talk to jurors about scientific evidence and just see from the looks on their faces that they find it fascinating, end quote. So, when David Chesnoff says, no evidence is evidence, he is suggesting that the jurors should lean into their desire for forensic evidence in assessing Robert Durst's culpability. And if they find such evidence lacking, they should consider that evidence in and of itself. After an exhaustive New York police investigation involving the New York Police Department and the State Police of New York, two of the most respected police agencies in the world, Bob Durst was never charged with any crime with respect to the disappearance of Kathy Durst. Two of the most respected police agencies in the world. The evidence will show that since 1982, 38 years with multiple police agencies involved, he has never been accused by the authorities in New York for her disappearance to this very day. You will not hear one piece of evidence that there is a single bit of forensic material either from the South Salem house or from Miss Berman's house connecting Bob either to Kathy's disappearance or Miss Berman's murder. The only issue is the note, which I will talk about later. Chesnoff refers to the cadaver note, the letter sent to the police to alert them to Susan's body, as the one and only piece of forensic material connecting Durst to Susan Berman's murder. Again, leaning into his no evidence is evidence argument. This argument relies heavily on direct forensic evidence and makes little reference to indirect or circumstantial evidence. You may remember that during jury selection, Deputy DA John Lewin offered the jury a much different method for interpreting evidence. Let's call it the OK Boomer method. Lewin presented a picture of his late dog Boomer in the middle of a trashed kitchen. When the potential jurors were polled, they agreed that Boomer was guilty of the vandalism beyond a reasonable doubt. Lewin told the potential jurors that they had just reached a verdict based on circumstantial evidence. Chesnoff next proceeds to attack some of the circumstantial evidence that the prosecution will present. The evidence will show that this case is based on false memories, a profound misunderstanding of who Bob is, and a Hollywood production called The Jinx, which the evidence will show was not an independent, pure documentary, but an eventual collaboration between the man who made the movie, the district attorney, and LAPD. Here, the prosecution's entire theory in this case is that in 1982, Susan Berman helped cover up the alleged murder of Mrs. Durst by Susan Berman, by, uh, by Susan Berman posing as Kathy, and then Bob silenced her years later because she threatened him. The evidence will show you that this theory was spun from whole cloth. It began in part as a result of a fictional movie that Jarecki made in which in the fictional, 
I emphasize the word fictional movie. It was presented as one of the theories that Susan Berman had impersonated Kathy at some point. That's how it started. Even after Mr. Jarecki got involved in this, he personally provided the LAPD with a PowerPoint to use in prosecuting Mr. Durst. So the Hollywood producer who made up this story about Susan Berman imitating Kathy is the one that's providing the Hollywood script for why we're here. Having disparaged Jarecki's so-called Hollywood version of events, David Chesnoff goes back to the disappearance of Kathy Durst and begins to outline Robert's side of the story. Let's discuss the story of Bob's journey with Kathy. In the fall of 71, Bob met Kathleen Kathy McCormick, who at the time was a dental hygienist. After falling in love, Bob invited Kathy to share his home in Vermont, where he had opened a health food store called All Good Things. Bob wanted a life in the country, as opposed to the fast lane in New York City. Bob was a product of the 60s, was kind of a counterculture person. Despite his family's large real estate business, Bob wanted a quiet life in Vermont. Bob's dad ultimately pressured him to move back to New York to work in the family real estate business. They got married on April 12, 1973, which was Bob's 30th birthday. The court TV displays a wedding picture of Robert and Kathy. Instead of a traditional tuxedo, Robert sports a rust-colored blazer and a red tie. He holds an Alaskan Malamute puppy in his arms. Beside him, Kathy wears white, but her dress is casual a loose-fitted, prairie-style frock. When they moved back to New York with Bob's help, Kathy enrolled at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. The Durst family were large benefactors of the school, and that may explain in part how she got into this school. Kathy and Bob enjoyed all the benefits of living in New York City. Restaurants, plays, museums, and a very vigorous and happy social life. They traveled around the world together on exotic vacations and were constant companions. However, along the way, there were serious bumps in the road and there were acts of violence by Bob that no one excuses. They're unacceptable. Nobody approves of it. And it was a reality of their relationship. No one's running away from that. John Lewin summarized Durst's violence against Kathy during his opening statement. To offer the jury a sense of the extent of Durst's aggression, Lewin played several clips from the raw interview footage of the jinx. Uh, she said the two of you went to a party and that you were both drunk and you came home and that was the first time that she remembers uh, that you had hit her. You had an argument and that, that you slapped her or something like that. Do you remember that? No. I don't remember the first time I had slapped her or hit her. Do you remember other times that... that uh... Oh, yeah. By, by, by 1981, our life was half arguments, fighting, slapping, pushing, wrestling. Chesnoff doesn't linger on the topic of Robert's domestic abuse. Instead, he pivots to Kathy's alleged instability. But the evidence will further show that Kathy began using cocaine and she was drinking alcohol to excess. While Kathy got into med school... She had difficulties, particularly in her senior year, and had many absences. For example, in 1980, she was unable to attend a large part of a clerkship, and that's evidenced by records that we have from her school. 
The school was also, quote, disappointed in her lack of responsibility, end quote, in spite of repeated reminders. A handwritten letter appears on the screen. The words are printed in a neat, slanted script. A letter from the assistant dean for the students, Dr. Jean Cook, states, Dear Ms. Durst, I understand from my office that things aren't going too smoothly for you right now. Would you like to talk to me? You think I can help? You will hear evidence that Kathy had a history of calling out instead of attending school. For example, according to Dr. Kaufman, Kathy previously called an absent from school with, quote, absurd excuses. Those calls were made by her. The evidence will show that Kathy's drinking and drug use contributed to her doing poorly at school and may explain the disappearance. The bottom line is that evidence will show Kathy was all over the place and was living an unstable life at times apart from Bob. The parties had consulted lawyers. They were trying to reach an amicable resolution, including perhaps staying together. Bob will tell you about that. Bob and Kathy were still spending time together and had a home and a cottage in South Salem, New York, where they would stay mostly on weekends, and they loved it. In the afternoon and early evening of January 31, 1982, the night before she's supposed to be at an important matter at school, Kathy Durst goes to a party by herself without Bob at her friend Bertie Najami's house. Kathy drove to the friend's home around 4 p.m. Bob and Kathy spoke on the phone several times, and she assured him that he, she would be back soon. Kathy was drinking a lot of alcohol and was doing coke at the party. According to the defense, Kathy came home to the South Salem house that evening. She had a sandwich with Robert and then decided that she wanted to drive back to New York City. Robert was tired. He didn't want to drive Kathy, and he wouldn't let her have the keys because she had been drinking. The argument escalated into a pushing and shoving fight, but eventually Kathy relented. She agreed to take the train back to the city, and Robert drove her to the station. John Lewin told the jury an altogether different story. On January 31st, 1982, Bob Durst's wife were together in South Sale that evening when she came home. They had a pushing and shoving argument. She was never heard from again. According to the prosecution, Kathy was never heard from again because that was the night that Robert Durst killed her. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. But David Chesnoff asserts that someone did hear from Kathy after January 31st. At least they heard her voice. Dr. Alan Cooperman, the dean of Albert Einstein Medical School, allegedly received a phone call from Kathy Durst the next morning. She said she was sick and wouldn't be able to make her rotation. Dr. Cooperman was a graduate of Cornell Medical School. He worked at NYU and CUNY. He worked for the Rockefeller Foundation. He worked on the development of medical schools around the world and ultimately became the Dean of Educational Affairs at Albert Einstein. He was a brilliant and accomplished man who was at his full strength in 1982 when he remembered speaking to Kathy. He spoke to her. He was expecting the call. He recognized her voice and he had a five to six minute conversation with her. Five to six minutes is a long time. I mean, if I stood here for five or six minutes, you would recognize that the evidence would show that That's a long time. Chesnoff emphasizes the length of the phone call and Dr. Cooperman's credentials because of the prosecution's assertion that Dr. Cooperman was fooled. John Lewin told the jury that it wasn't Kathy on the phone that morning. It was Susan Berman pretending to be Kathy. During the original investigation, Dr. Cooperman assumed, and the investigators accepted it, that in fact, it was Kathy he had spoken to on the phone. Now, the evidence is going to show that that was an absolutely incorrect assumption. During the original investigation, there were certain important questions that Dr. Cooperman was never asked. Lewin's fellow prosecutor, Habib Balian, questioned Dr. Cooperman at an earlier hearing. Your interactions personally with Kathleen Durst over the course of her entire medical career were approximately 10 five, minutes. Five to 10 minutes. Five to 10 minutes. Right. Had you ever spoken with her on the telephone before? No. Had you ever heard her voice on a recording of any kind whatsoever before? No. So are, are you able to say based on the voice that it was or wasn't Kathy Durst? No. Why did you think it was Kathy Durst calling? She said she was Kathleen Durst. She said she was Kathy Durst. And according to David Chesnoff, there is no meaningful evidence to suggest otherwise. While there is ample evidence to suggest that it wasn't Susan Berman. Not some writer from LA, but a medical student who grew up in New York and spoke like a New Yorker. Not a woman from California who doesn't speak like a New Yorker. The woman on the phone described having gastrointestinal distress, a headache, and diarrhea. Chesnoff implies that the articulation of these specific symptoms indicate that she was a medical student one comfortable discussing her ailments in detail. In addition, Chesnoff points to the fact that there were no records of any phone calls between Susan Berman and Robert Durst on the night of January 31st or on the morning of February 1st. According to the defense, the lack of telephone records indicates that Susan and Robert did not conspire to make the call to Dr. Cooperman. In a day and age where There was very little use of cell phones. The evidence will show that Bob could not kill Kathy on that night and could not coordinate with Susan Berman to call her dean by the next morning and they have no proof 
whatsoever he ever spoke to Susan Berman that night. No proof means no evidence, means reasonable doubt. Chesnoff explains that in the days following Kathy's disappearance, Robert became increasingly concerned about his missing wife. February 4, 1982, Bob began calling Kathy's friends and family because he was nervous he had not seen or heard from her. And you gotta remember, she's an independent woman, she's in school, they have their own place in New York, she has things to do, and to some degree there's some separation. So not hearing from her for a day or two is not unusual, the evidence will show. He asked his next door neighbor in South Salem, have you seen Kathy or heard from her? Because they were friends. On February 5, 1982, Bob personally reported his wife missing to the New York police, including Detective Strzok. He went to the police station with his dog. You will hear evidence that he went to see Detective Strzok in person. And he had a magazine with him. A New York magazine appears on the court's TV screen. The headline states, quote, the men who own New York, end quote. Below are the pictures of five smiling real estate tycoons, including a young Donald Trump and Robert's father, Seymour Durst. He brings this magazine with him because he doesn't want this to be given short shrift you're just another guy coming in reporting somebody missing. He wants that policeman to know that this woman, Mrs. Durst, is a member of a prominent New York family and being missing, missing could have all sorts of uh, uh, reasons. Kidnapping, some, some, uh, someone that she was uh, romantically involved with. But he wanted to impress upon the police department that this should be taken seriously. You will hear that Trooper Harney of the State Police, another professional agency, searched the South Hale Salem home on February 6, 1982, and specifically indicated that no signs of, quote, foul play were found. David Chesnoff informs the jury that Durst fully cooperated with the police. His family offered a $100,000 reward for Kathy's return, and Durst hired a private detective in an attempt to find his missing wife. In the midst of this crisis, Robert struggled to contend with the frenzy of media attention, so he reached out to a friend for help. Susan Berman, Bob's longtime best friend from college at UCLA, helped to be a spokesperson in the media. As you know, they shared a bond. They kind of both had quirky personalities. Susan was an accomplished writer and journalist. She wasn't afraid of the media and wasn't intimidated. She was a really early kind of feminist reporter, actually. So she wasn't afraid of the press. Bob, who Mr. Gagarin explained to you, has uh, a form of uh, Asperger's um, or, or autism couldn't deal with that. So his friend Susan helped him. He doesn't communicate effectively. And the disappearance of his wife and all the attention was very upsetting to him for the same reasons it would be upsetting to any one of us. That Susan Berman wanted to help Bob during this hard time doesn't mean that she helped Bob cover up. It means she wanted to help Bob with the press. 
which is what she did. The defense asserts that Susan Berman was just being a friend. She and Durst had a close-knit relationship built on their common backgrounds. Their fathers were powerful men, one a real estate mogul and the other a Las Vegas organized crime figure, and both their mothers died at a young age in possible suicides. With childhoods marked by a combination of extravagance and tragedy, Robert and Susan developed eccentric personalities that others somehow found abrasive. But the quirky pair always understood one another. Susan always liked to be the center of attention and could sometimes rub people the wrong way. She had weird quirks and fears. She didn't cross bridges on certain streets. She didn't eat at restaurants unless she was absolutely sure its ingredients wouldn't trigger one of her professed allergies. Her personality would result in conflicts throughout her life, including among family and friends, but not with Bob. Susan also enjoyed being dramatic and testing people's reactions. She was a unique personality, which explains why she and Bob were such good friends. You can't always explain or understand other people's relationships, but in this case, the evidence will show you why they cared about each other so much. Not because of some plot, but because of a relationship that developed when they were in college together and lasted until her unfortunate. So when Kathy disappeared and no one had answers, Susan was there for him as a friend to help him through the chaos, which was all the attention that was being paid to this. In the coming years, Durst returned the favor financially assisting Susan when her Hollywood career faltered and she lost her money to a doomed theater production. Although Susan and Robert lived on opposite sides of the country, they remained close. Durst frequently came to Los Angeles and took Susan out on the town, no expenses spared. According to the defense, Susan was expecting such a visit in the winter of 2000. Chesnoff tells the jury that Robert traveled to San Francisco on the 19th of December, then drove to Southern California, stopping several times. He made it to Bakersfield on December 22nd, but spent the night at a hotel because he had a migraine. That evening, he called Susan and told her he would pick her up in the morning and take her to breakfast at the Rose Cafe in Venice. But on December 23rd, Durst arrived at Susan's house and found her lifeless body on the bedroom floor. She had been shot in the back of the head. Yes, Bob found the body of Susan Berman on December 23, 2000, and he notified police of her body as he wrote what the prosecution calls the cadaver note. But he didn't murder Susan. Bob found the body of Susan Berman. He notified the police of her body as he wrote what the prosecution calls the cadaver note. David Chesnoff has arrived at what he called the only issue connecting Robert Durst to the murder of Susan Berman. How will he address this piece of evidence? And how will Durst explain his repeated denials that he wrote that note? As David Chesnoff presents the final act of the defense team's opening statement, can he redirect the jury's attention away from the cadaver note and the other evidence promised by the prosecutors and instead get the jurors to focus on all of the evidence that is absent? ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. 
here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com On the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Yes, Bob found the body of Susan Vernon on December 23, 2000 and he notified police of her body as he wrote what the prosecution calls the cadaver. So if she's murdered on the 23rd, seven, 19 days go by before the LAPD thinks it's worthwhile to go in with a criminalist and assign a criminalist to study who might have killed Susan Berman. People were traipsing through the crime scene. Prosecution is basically relying solely on witnesses who waited years to report alleged statements that Susan or Bob made. Actually, a lot of them was only until after they were aware of the jinx and other media. As you see, evidence will be presented which will support the suppressed memories can be altered. This case was wrapped in a bow by Jarecki and his Hollywood production. It led to a universal belief that Bob would never get a fair trial. But everybody over here knows that you people are going to consider evidence only. And if the evidence is not there, he stays innocent. And you will find him not guilty. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Terracone. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Terracone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.